Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Welcome back to Nature vs. Narcissism. This episode is part of our Listener Request Month. We are covering cases that you, the listeners, have requested. Today I have a very special guest and a fellow podcaster on to help me with this case. So, Breaker, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Breaker. I was uh, born and raised here in Honolulu, Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, no, no, I don't live in a grass hut or a uh, surf. <laughs> <laughs> I've had that before. Uh, um, not much to know about me. I work for a major retailer, Stocking. Uh, I'm a, like a, Heather said, I'm a podcaster. I started my podcast uh, mainly to bring attention to the cases here in Hawaii. I noticed that not many people talk about our cases here. Yeah, I've actually noticed that as well. And I don't know if I, it's just because I'm from the U.S. and I hear about like a lot of my close friends or whatever who podcast and they cover local cases or what it is. But I, I realized when I was researching this one, it was kind of difficult to narrow down uh, actual facts. So I don't know if that's why or like if you're not from the area, you're not too familiar with the statistics and stuff. I'm not sure. I think our journalism here, pardon the expression, sucks. <laughs> uh, uh, when I do a lot of my 
my episodes, why they're so short is there's just not enough facts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. This uh, this particular case that we're going to cover today is uh, an exception to the uh, rule because this one had more facts than most do. Nice. Okay. So I thought I was I was kind of struggling a little bit, but I think it's just you know the differences in the journalism and the reporting and stuff like that. So maybe that's where I kind of got hung up. You know, I have my own like sources that I'm used to finding stuff on, and it was just a little bit difficult for Hawaii. Yeah, uh, I'm lucky if I get a 20-minute episode out of a case, so. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least you're letting people be aware of the cases, though. You're at least helping a little bit. Yeah, um, that was my main focus when I started my podcast. So, yeah, my podcast name is uh, The Darker Side, True Crime. So if you want to look me up, I'm there. Awesome, Yeah. And everybody can subscribe to that and, and follow and everything. And do you have a Facebook page or anything for that? Uh, I am on Twitter only right now, uh, the Darker Side Pod. Awesome. Well, uh, so I want to thank you again for requesting this case and for assisting with, like, the research and recording and everything of it. So before delving into the actual case, though, I wanted to find out a bit more from you. Uh, you, you presented this case to me. I really hadn't heard of it. So what stood out to you about it? What, why did you, why do you think you're drawn to this particular case? Uh, like the majority of the cases that I covered, this one is, has been unsolved for over 20 years. Um, I believe someone was arrested, but they were let off. I believe that they, they were let out, I believe. Um, and no one's been rearrested since. Mm. And, uh, so no one's been reconvicted, uh, no one's been rearrested or anything, and I wanted to bring it to people's attention. Sorry, spoil alert. <laughs> no, 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 you're fine. Uh, so, okay, I guess we'll just get into it then. So with season two, I've been opening the episodes with location information, which may be a lot easier since I have you here to kind of help with the actual statistics and facts and stuff around that location. Uh, because every time I searched for, like, population, demographics, crime rates for Pune, which is, like, the area that it happened in, mm. I kept getting results for Poha. Is that how you say it? Aloha. Poha. Poha. Yeah, so I kept getting... Uh, results for that. So I'm not sure if it's because Pune is inside of Poha or how that works. If you could elaborate on that. Poha is a district in Pune, actually. Oh, okay. So I had it backwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I actually had to go uh, look it up too, because I don't live on the island. I actually live on Oahu. Uh, so. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I did I did find that Pune is one of the nine districts of Hawaii County on the like big island is what they refer to it as. But is it called the island of Hawaii or like how do you pronounce that? It's the island of Hawaii, 
but everybody just calls it Hawaii. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, I'm not sure if you're supposed to pronounce that differently. Okay. You could go either way because even the locals here, we just call it Hawaii. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was so confusing to me. I was like, man, there's just a lot to this place. <laughs> uh, so from what I did find, though, it is just under 1,300 square miles. Uh, or I'm sorry, square kilometers, which is about 500 square miles. It is mild and tropical climate with a, a lot of rainfall. And then this next place, I or this next volcano name, I cannot say it. So if you want to. <laughs> it's uh, Kilauea. Kilauea is the yeah. most active, one of the most active volcanoes in the world. And until August of 2018, it was continuously in action until 1983. <laughs> so I found that really interesting. Yeah, this this particular volcano here has a lot of myth mythology to it in our c culture here. Oh, how so? Um, under Hawaiian mythology, it's uh, one of their Hawaiian goddesses called Pele or Madam Pele. Um, a long time ago, they believed that Madam Pele came to Hawaii and she created the islands, dug down deep into the earth on each island and pulled up the island chain to create the islands. Mm. Wow. And she chose the, the um, volcano of Kilauea as her home. Oh, wow. And it's been said that the that the road that goes by the volcano, that if you drive by during the right time of day, you'll find her hitchhiking, and you're supposed to pick her up or suffer bad consequences if you see her. Ooh, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> <laughs> but she's a um, it's supposed to be a good spirit. She'll never harm anyone if you pick her up. <laughs> If you pick it, <laughs> otherwise yeah. you're done. <laughs> yeah, then then you then you'll suffer uh, misfortune. <laughs> it's kind of terrifying. <laughs> so, do you live near any volcanoes yourself, or no? Um, the only islands with volcanoes on it actually is the island of Hawaii and the island of Maui. The rest of the islands do not have active volcanoes on them. So uh, the island of Oahu, where the, uh, the capital is, where I live, we don't have any vo active volcanoes here. I do live near an uh, uh, extinct volcano, though. <laughs> when did it become extinct? Oh, gee. <laughs> long time ago? <laughs> a, a very long time ago. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> uh, so I guess we'll get into the demographics then. So, again, when I was looking up demographics for Puna, it pulled back Pahoha. <laughs> I'm never going to get that right. But I did it's find okay. <laughs> a chart that breaks down the population based on district, which was kind of helpful. So, the population and Pahoha, Pahoha, based on the 2010 <laughs> census, was just 945 people. <laughs> and if I look at the chart based on district, the population in 2010 in Puna was 42,591. So I don't know if like you had any more information about uh, that aspect of it or maybe the size of both of those places. 
Not really. I think I have the same information as you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Perfect. I'm like, good. I got something right. Okay. <laughs> and according to the World Population Review website, the most recent breakdown of the racial composition in Bahoha, good God, however you say it, uh, Hawaii is 28.9% Asian, 27.4% two or more races, 23.4% white. 18.6% Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander, and 1.5% Native American. Does that seem pretty uh, accurate in your area as well, or is it a little bit different, you think? It's probably different here on the on my, where I live. Uh, we're uh, more mixed. Um, we have more... Uh, we actually do have uh, African Americans here, and we have Muslims here. We have all. We're, we're a melting pot here on the Capital Island. It's more. Um, uh, how can I put this? It's more kind of like a um, uh, rural on the neighbor islands. Okay. So you you'll have more whites and Native Americans and Asians on the neighbor islands. Why do you think that is? Do you think that the Capital Island has like, I mean, I'm going to sound really probably ignorant here, but don't don't you guys have like a military base there on that island? Yes, we do. We okay. have several, actually. <laughs> okay, I thought you did. So do you think it's because of the military bases that you have such a wide, like like such a melting pot on that particular island? I would think so. Okay. I, I would think so. Yeah, I've noticed in places with military bases that seems to be the same, uh, you know, breakdown, kind of like it's just every walk of life. <laughs> yeah, and it's been like that since, uh, uh, I would think since uh, the times of the plantations, because uh, we've had sugar plantations here. So, you know, since before our territorial days, nice. it's been like that. So Nice. All right. So something that I've been trying to introduce into the most recent episodes here is like famous people or interesting facts about the area. Now, I wasn't able to confirm that these people were like from Puna or Pahoa, Hawaii per se, but they were born in Hawaii. And I think that's really cool. So since we don't really cover a lot of Hawaii, Hawaii cases too much, I wanted to share a little bit of that. So President, well, former President Barack Obama was born in Hawaii and graduated from Punahou School. Punahou. Punahou School, which is apparently a pretty prestigious school from what I read. Yeah, only uh, Native Hawaiians go there, I believe. Wow. Punahou, I believe. Yeah, well, it's... It's very expensive. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Yeah, from what I was reading, it was very, like, very exclusive, it seemed. So Bruno Mars was born in Waikiki. Bethany Hamilton was born in and still lives in Kauai. 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 She is a professional surfer who lost her arm in a shark attack in 2003. 
Nicole Kidman was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, after her parents moved there from Australia on education visas. And I found that really interesting because my entire life, I always thought that she was just like born in Australia and then came to the States. So I was like really blown away away by that one. And then uh, Jason Momoa won the 1999 Hawaii Model of the Year Award. (laughs) thought that was pretty funny. Also, Hawaii's only astronaut. Ellison Onizuka, who died in the Challenger accident. Oh. Yes. Oh. It was in the 19, early 1980s, I think. Wow. Well, now that just made that whole section sad. <laughs> oh, well, he, he, he died doing what he loved. Yeah, and, that's true. Uh, I, knew, I know some of his family. He, 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 he died doing what he loved. So is it kind of like tight knit over there? Like, like at least where you live, is it pretty like everybody knows everybody or is it like a bigger area where you, you only know them if you like work with them or live next to them or something? Sometimes it can seem that way because it's an island. That's why (laughs) I was asking. (laughs) Sometimes it can seem that way. Um, like if you, you commit a bank robbery, there's nowhere to run. That kind <laughs> yeah, of thing. That's you know? true. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but it seems like that uh, that way sometimes. You run into old classmates when you go out. You know that that kind of thing. Nice. Sometimes it feels that way. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we'll get into the crime stats and then we will take a really quick break and then come back to the case. So uh, according to the Neighborhood Scout website, the chance that someone will become a victim of a violent crime such as armed robbery, aggravated assault, rape or murder in Pohoha is one in one or one in 331, which is a rate of three per 1000 residents. The property crime rate is 25 per 1,000, and the crime index rating is 17, meaning that it is safer than 17% of U.S. cities, which is pretty interesting. Um, I thought that it would be much higher of a rating. I I thought that they would be much safer for some reason. But if you look at the, the state as a whole, it might be. Yeah, yeah, that's true. We are looking at one district here. Um, I did find a Reddit thread discussing the crime rate in Pune, which was kind of interesting. And, you know, it's a Reddit thread, so I can't really, you know, you got to take it with a grain of salt sometimes. But some people were discussing the fact that they were told not to visit Pune as it was more dangerous than other parts of the Big Island. Others were indicating that it's due to the lack of police coverage. And Star Bulletin archives confirmed that there were just 350 sworn police officers responsible for the all of Big Island at the time that Dana was murdered. And this is compared to the 1,900 officers that Oahu had at the same time. And then there's cheap property, absentee property owners, and it's an area of high substance abuse. And then another person stated that it's not necessarily more dangerous than other areas, but it's just that more people report the crimes that do occur there. So it just seems like it's more dangerous. Every place has its, excuse the expression, every, every place has its ghetto. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> I true. I think that 
I think that this is Hawaii Island's ghetto because um, Hawaii Island, I don't think, is very populated. In other words, it's sparsely populated and it's all spread out. So I think that this is their ghetto. I'm, I can't say for certain, but from what it sounds like, I think this is their ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of sounds like it the way people were describing it, like people who like live in the area or were from the area on Reddit. And again, it's Reddit, so I'm taking it with a grain of salt, but at the same time, it's anecdotal evidence. So people who experience different things, and it's just like, well, that kind of sounds like the area here that we know of as the ghetto, so that sounds about accurate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because even we have ours here on this island, too. I mean, in fact, we have more than one because of our population size, you know. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, it all adds up. <laughs> <laughs> it does. All right. We're going to take a really quick break. And then when we get back, we will talk about Dana, Ireland. Welcome back. Now, with Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Like we've covered the location details and the crime stats to the best of our ability. Let's talk about this case. The murder of Dana Ireland. So I like to ask who the person was, and this is all because of my co-host of Status Pending, Scott Fuller. He kind of brought this up to me a while back, and he was like, you know, everybody talks about the victim and who they were as the victim. They never talk about the person that they were before they became a victim. And that really, like, resonated with me. So now I'm, like, trying to look into this information when I cover cases and, you know, try to find out who they were before you know, they were murdered. You know, they were a person too, not just a victim of somebody. So we're going to talk a little bit about her early years and then what got her to Hawaii before her brutal murder. So Dana Marie Ireland was born to parents John and Louise Ireland on December 12, 1968 in Springfield, Virginia. Her parents already had one daughter, Sandra, who was 13 at the time. And they started rather late in life when they found out that they were pregnant with Dana. So her mother was 43, and she had been experiencing bloating and discomfort. And she was actually talking to her neighbor about it, who had informed her that she was pregnant. And she was like, no, no, I'm not pregnant. I'm 43. I'm past that stage. And she went to the doctor and found out, yeah, she was. She was pregnant. <laughs> 
So surprise. Yeah, surprise. You're having a baby. <laughs> you didn't know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it came as a surprise to the whole family, but of course they embraced it and she came out, she was healthy, everything was fine. And so when she was three years old, though, she asked her father what her middle initial M stood for. And, you know, he's just being a dad, working on his dad jokes. And he replied with Magoo, which eventually stuck <laughs> with the neighborhood kids. And they all started calling her Magoo as her nickname. So I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> uh, she was a good kid. Uh, by all accounts, she was described as obedient, but she could also be stubborn. So an example of that was when she was eight years old, she told her parents that she wasn't going to go to school one day. And when she finally explained to her parents the reasoning behind her decision, she indicated that Jewish students were being given a holiday and that they didn't have to attend school. She decided that she wasn't going to either. And her parents explained that they get holidays, too, just as Christmas is celebrated by others. But she fired back with, quote, but they get Christmas off, too. <laughs> so her dad said, yeah, she's got a point. Like, can't argue with her. <laughs> Which That's is pretty funny. Kid. Yeah, she's really smart <laughs> for eight years old. Yeah. <laughs> so her mother, Louise, was a stay-at-home mother who ensured that, like, every day, she would be at home waiting for Dana to arrive back from school. Dana was very loyal. She was really particular about her friends. So, like, her dad explained how every time she brought a new friend home, he, like, immediately approved of them. He never had any issues with any of them. They were very kind and generous people. She just had a good head on her shoulders and chose really good people to be around. Um, <laughs> her dad said that... He did have, like, small disagreements with her, but they were disagreements that you wouldn't think he would have to have. So one was about her allowance. Apparently, he wanted her to take an allowance, like a weekly allowance, and she kept refusing. She basically wanted to earn her own money by working, and she didn't want to take his money. <laughs> <laughs> like, she was super smart from day one. We all need a kid like that. Right? Like, that's like the perfect kid. <laughs> she lived in the same home her entire life. So the Irelands were at that same house in Virginia for 37 years. She was always on the go, doing as much as possible to keep busy most of the time. So she would, like, be exercising or skating, running around, doing all kinds of things. She didn't really watch TV unless it had something to do with Hawaii or water skiing or surfing, stuff of that nature. She didn't read too much either, though, unless it was National Geographic where she could learn about the world. So she was very, very intelligent when it came to, like, different cultures and different, I don't just everything, basically, in the world. <laughs> way, way smarter than me. <laughs> um... She was also a tomboy, but one who would make sure that, like, her clothes fit just right with the right kind of shoes. So she was still really particular about that type of stuff, but she didn't, like, dress up or anything. She didn't wear makeup. She said she wanted to look natural. She was very particular about her diet because staying fit was really important to her, so she also didn't smoke or do drugs. Her mother did recall that she drank once in college, but it made her so sick that she never tried it again. 
which is good. Girl, girl good for her. <laughs> yeah. Unlike me. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike most. Yeah. She was really close to her sister, Sandy. Uh, well, Sandra, but everybody called her Sandy, uh, even though they were 13 years apart. So Dana would even wear her hair long because Sandy had long hair and she wanted to be just like her. And the mother recalled, you know, or the mother said in an interview that they looked so much alike that it was hard to tell them apart mm. in pictures sometimes. Which is crazy if they're 13 years apart and it's hard to tell them apart. Um, so Sandra would eventually move to Hawaii with her boyfriend, who she eventually married, and the family would visit her just about every year. And this is where Dana's love for the ocean and outdoor lifestyle came from. Dana ended up moving in with Sandra and Jim after she finished college, and the family, as they did every year, went to Sandra's for Christmas in 1991. They were all together on that Christmas Eve and went to Hilo to buy gifts. This, unfortunately, was the last day that they spent together. So, any thoughts on uh, her childhood or anything before we move on? Seems too idyllic. You know, leave it to Beaver, idyllic. Well, I mean, she was the baby, though. You know, that's true. Yeah, I don't. It does. It just. It does seem like it's like a perfect childhood, though. Or she was like the perfect kid most perfect kid ever i don't know <laughs> yeah just keep imagining leave it to beaver it's... <laughs> <laughs> all right let's uh talk about the day of the murder so we're gonna recount uh the day of the murder in different ways so basically how the mother recalls it and then what happened with the 911 call and the dispatch and everything like that so according to Louise Ireland, during her testimony in July of 1999, these are the events that she remembers from that day. She and her daughters Sandy and Dana had just returned to their rented home in Vacation Land subdivision, which is south of Hilo, on the afternoon of December 24th, 1991, after Christmas shopping. I put a typo in there. It's 2991, apparently. Oh, back to the future. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's why I like chuckled right when I was saying it. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> uh, she stated that Dana told her she wanted to invite her friend Mark Evans to Christmas dinner and left the house before Louise even realized she was gone. Later that same afternoon, Mark Evans called the Irelands to see if Dana was there, to which Louise replied that she wasn't. A short time later, Sandy came running inside and asked if Dana was there. Louise said no. Why? And when Sandy said, and that's when Sandy said that something awful had happened. Sandy described a crumpled bicycle, a shoe, and some hair on the road. Louise said, oh my God, somebody hit her. That is when she, Sandy, Sandy's boyfriend Jim, and a neighbor all went to the hospital. An ambulance arrived later with Dana and Jim, Dana, and Jim ran up to her trying to comfort her by saying, Dana, we are here with you. Louise remembers that the doctors weren't coming out too often with updates, and when one did, she asked him if it was life-threatening, to which he replied yes. So Louise called her husband John, who was still at the rental home, and he arrived at the hospital just in time because she died right after he showed up. That's awful. I couldn't even imagine. Like, just getting ready for Christmas and 
you know, everybody's there, everybody's fine, and then, you know, one of your children goes out to invite somebody else to Christmas dinner and just never comes back. Yeah, I couldn't imagine what's going through the heads of our parents. That's horrible. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, it's awful. So Ida Smith is the woman who found Dana Ireland, and at this point, Dana had already been lying on the ground for almost an hour. There was a call placed to the police at about 5.47 p.m. by Hazel Allen. She indicated that she had been coming down Beach Road from, uh, from, what is it? I don't know how to say it. Kahakai. Coming down Beach Road from Kahakai, and a woman in a van came running out yelling, help, help, help. She stopped her car, and the woman, who was now we know as Ida Smith, Ask her to go to the store and call the police as there was a woman who had been raped and was in very bad shape. She told the dispatcher, Jerome Fagg, that Ida was basically screaming bloody murder. She gave directions to him, but he didn't seem to know the area too well. He apparently passed the information to dispatcher Donna Brescia, and Brescia radioed for officers who were already busy to respond to the call. An ambulance was never called after that. Or at least at that point. So, again, this was Christmas Eve. As already indicated in the crime stats section, there weren't that many sworn-in officers in Pune at the time. And in a deposition in 1993, Brescia indicated that there were normally, at the most, two officers assigned to that area. And, since it was Christmas Eve, it was difficult to contact detectives and ranking police officials who were off-duty to come in and help. So it's already like a bad situation. There aren't enough resources as it is. And then it's a holiday trying to find more resources to come in and leave their families or, you know, just be able to come to, you know, an accident scene like that. It's it was very hard for them. So Jerry Coleman uh, she used to be known as Jerry Gallagher, was a licensed practical nurse and the woman who went to Dana, Ireland to try and help. It was at about 6 p.m., and one of Jerry and Randy, her husband, one of their acquaintances named Brian, came to their door. He was wearing a light-up Christmas hat, which comes into play in just a minute. He knocked on their door and told Jerry that there was a girl whom he and others believed had been raped, and she was down in the jungle. Now, question for you about this. So when he says down in the jungle, does he, is he literally referring to like there's jungle area around there or is it just, is he referring to like it's a wooded area? I think a wooded area because the real jungle area I, w I would think is up near the mountains, I think. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, I thought it was a wooded area by the way they, you know, were talking about it in the articles, but he, he said the jungle, so I just figured that that was like a local term that they used. Yeah, I think it's just a, some a word he used, I guess. Because, yeah, normally, at least where I live, the only real, like, jungle we have is, like, the wooded areas. Okay, yeah. That's what I was thinking, and I was like, well, I'm going to just double check here. So he, he ended up driving Jerry down to Dana, which was only about a mile from her house. So they were there rather quickly. Uh, Dana was found on jagged rocks and broken naupaka bushes. 
And you said that you had a little bit more information on those bushes. It's just a funny name to me. Uh, what what type of bush is this exactly? Like how how would you describe it to the listeners? Yeah, those are of indigenous type of coastal plant that can be found on most co- coastal areas. Even we have them here on where on the island I live. It's a low lying type of bush with thick uh, spiny leaves um, that kind of hurts to walk through if you don't have uh, footwear on. Mm. So um, we locals tend to avoid them at (laughs) almost all cost. (laughs) But it's kind of rare because the the city and county kinds of, uh, at least the, um, the more populated areas, the beaches that are more popular, they clean them up. So... Um, you'll find them like on the like um, the North Shore and stuff, and the coast, uh, um, the the North Shore. You'll find a lot of it up there because no one really goes over there to sunbathe and stuff because the surf is really high up there. <laughs> mm. So, um, but yeah, and you'll find them like sometimes near the um, uh, volcanoes, uh, 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 like a kil- near the Kilauea volcanoes because the, um, there's surf near there. So they get watered and stuff and they'll sprout over there too. So would it be similar to like what we have here, like a sticker bush? Like would it, is it painful if you like fall into it or something? Like can it poke you at all? It can if you're like wearing short sleeves. Mm-hmm. If you fall into it, it'll it'll stick into your stick into you. It's not really like a like a um the sticker bush. I, I I think I know what you're speaking of. Um, there's no nothing that'll like stick onto you if you like sit up. It, it, I mean, you know, there's no uh, seedlings or anything that'll come with you or go with you when you walk away. So it just, it'll just like be irritating and scratchy. Yeah, irritating, scratchy. You'll be left with you know indentations in your skin. Yeah. You know <laughs> when you. You know, if you, you know, if you fall on them or something, you have like little indentations in your skin when you stand up or something. Yeah. So stay away from those. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awful. Yeah. So she was laying, you know, on broken bushes and jagged rocks. So like that, oh, that's awful. Jerry noticed also that the inside of her thighs had been bruised and she was bleeding. Now, it wasn't profusely bleeding, but she could tell by the way that she was bleeding and where she was bruised that she had been raped. The skin on her shoulders, elbows, and arms was torn. There were pebbles and gravel embedded into her skin. There was a gash in the back of her head and the bleeding was still active. And a paramedic later stated that her skull was visible at the site where the gash was on her head. So she was hit very hard. Jerry ended up treating Dana for shock by raising her feet and lowering her head. She also bandaged her wounds and tried to keep her talking. So she asked her what her name was, and she answered with what sounded like she said is land, uh, like I-Z land. Um, She then asked who attacked her, but Dana wasn't coherent. She responded to Jerry and said, please give me the keys so I can drive home. So she just wasn't, she was out of it completely. And to try to keep Dana awake, Jerry tried getting Dana to look at the flashing lights that were on Brian's hat. 
But by this point, Randy arrived and said that they say help is on the way. So he had, you know, gone out to call for help at that point. So another call to police happens, and this was about 6.07 p.m. when an anonymous caller alerted police about Dana. They stated that one of their friends drove to their house and some chick got raped and thrown off to the side of the road, is what they said. At 6.07 p.m., an ambulance was finally called by Brescia, but there were still issues with getting it to Dana. The closest ambulance to where she was would have normally been located about nine miles away in Pooha. However, this ambulance had gone to Hilo Hospital, so the fire department decided to send the next closest ambulance, but that was located in Kiao? Kilo. 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 Uh, which I'm so bad at these names. Thank you so much. Uh, and that was about 18 miles away and a fire truck was also sent with that ambulance. Unfortunately though, neither the ambulance nor the fire truck were able to find Dana because apparently Brescia gave them bad directions as to where she was located. So the fire truck arrived on Beach Road at about 6.26 p.m., but they were lost. They were driving around in circles and looking into an abandoned car. So I guess at this point, they assumed that since there was an accident, a hit and run of some sort, they assumed that this abandoned car had something to do with it, and they, they weren't able to find her located anywhere near the car. So the ambulance... That's an epic facepalm right there. Yeah, and that's what I'm thinking. Like, you know, if that's the case, why don't you call back and ask, like, hey, we found an abandoned car, but nobody's here. Is this the right location? You know, why didn't they ask for more information is what I was wondering at that point. Duh. <laughs> yeah. The ambulance arrived thereafter, and at about 6.35 p.m., someone who was leaving Beach Road told them that they were two miles from where they needed to be. But the fire truck hesitated as the road was unpaved and filled with potholes. They radioed in and indicated that they didn't think they could make it. So Brescia, with dispatch, told them to take in a police car then. Like, whatever you have to do, get over there is basically what he's saying, like... Brescia then called and told them that Dana was in serious condition and asked if they had sent someone down yet. The ambulance indicated that they would try to go in, but the fire truck never moved. He just sat there. <sighs> what the, what I the know. hell? I know, dude, I know. The ambulance finally made its way to Dana, but this was one hour after the first call to the police. So at that point, she's been laying there for about two hours. Like, she could have, you know, been saved by now. Like, she would not have had to lose her life if somebody would have gotten to her sooner. So, at about 7.13 p.m., the ambulance headed for Hilo Hospital with Dana, and they didn't arrive there until 7.56 p.m. After several hours, Dana Marie Ireland was pronounced dead at 12.25 a.m. on Christmas Day. Her cause of death was given as loss of blood due to extensive traumatic injuries of head, pelvis, and abdomen caused by a motor vehicle accident. So I want to discuss that just a little bit because obviously there were some discrepancies along the way about her death. The parents were told by the lieutenant that their daughter was in a hit-and-run accident, Mm -hmm. 
but they heard reports on the radio that she was murdered. So initially, you know, we've got all these people from different places thinking hit and run, motor vehicle accident, and now they're hearing about murder. So was she hit by a car? Was she in a car and hit? Was she on a bike and hit by a car? Was she walking and hit by a car? You know, there's so many variables and so much stuff that's just uncertain with this. And then the parents well, hear this the next day. It's the old... Uh, there's this uh, exercise when I was in ROTC in uh, high school that my sergeant major had us do where he had us line up in a line and he would, he whispered a message into the cadet's ear at one end and we would whisper it going down the line. The telephone And by game. the time, yeah, and by yeah. the time it got to the other end, the message wasn't what, what it was when it got down to the other end. Right. Uh, I think it's a, it's a severe case of miscommunication and... I think it was a severe case of miscommunication. I think so, too. And, you know, with the different calls that were coming in and the dispatch not being relayed properly to the, you know, to the to the right people who were able to go out there to save her. So, like, with that first 911 call, obviously that guy apparently didn't know anything about the areas and, and he didn't relay that message to the other dispatcher. So... It's almost like that first 911 call didn't even exist because nobody sprung into action until the second 911 call, which is very unfortunate. Yeah, it seems like the dispatcher didn't take it seriously or something. Yeah. Or the or the police didn't take it seriously or something. Something happened along the way, and I think maybe... I don't know if it's maybe the way they interpreted what the caller was saying, like oh, somebody has been raped and they seem like they're doing really bad. Like, I mean, if I would have walked up on that scene the way that that nurse Jerry did and what she saw and described, that's so much different than what that dispatcher on that first call heard. You know what I mean? Like, she's been raped and she's doing pretty bad. No, this lady was, like, not coherent. She has all these injuries all over her. She looks like she had been thrown down on these rocks in this wooded area or whatever. Like, it's a lot more serious than somebody needing to report a rape. You know what I mean? It just seemed more intense than, than maybe what was relayed on that first call. I think it has also to do with their training as well. I know that our HPD or our Honolulu Police Department wouldn't have handled it this way either. So I think it has to be has something to do with their training. How do they you, handled it badly? Exactly. Yeah. How do you think that Honolulu would have handled it? Like, say it was the same situation and they received a call with somebody saying the same thing. How do you think they would have responded to it? The dispatch immediately would have handled it by dispatching an ambulance. Christmas Day or not, the ambulance would have headed out there. Uh, all, the, the, and if an ambulance would not have made it, the fire department would have been dispatched. Uh, police also would have been dispatched to the scene of the, the accident, if an accident was reported as well. So all three emergency services would have been dispatched at one time. 
Yeah, I feel... I believe it's the police department that handles all our dispatching. Yeah, and I feel like it would have been the same way here, too. But, you know, when reading through these different articles and these different uh, documentations about this case, it seems like when help did arrive, police weren't even there, that it was just the ambulance and fire truck. But I feel like with every call, even remotely similar to that here, police always comes with the, you know, emergency response team. Yeah, I think that they botched this pretty bad. Yeah, (laughs) it's very unfortunate, yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, they botched this really bad. Mm -hmm. So at this point, we're trying to figure out who committed this crime against her, right? So on June 19th, 1994, at about 8.17 in the morning, Uh, There was an interview room at Criminal Investigation Division, Hawaii County Police Department, and Detective Stephen Guillermo questioned 21-year-old Frank Raymond Pauline Jr. about Dana Ireland's murder. So Pauline indicated that he understood his rights. He still wanted to waive them. The detective then asked Pauline to share with him what happened on December 24, 1991, and All the while, if I'm understanding this correctly, Pauline was already in jail for another crime, and he decided to confess to her murder, if I'm understanding everything correctly. So the following is what he said. He said, quote, Okay, one day my two friends came to pick me up, Ian and Sean Schweitzer. They went and asked me to go to a party, and I told them, yeah, so we headed towards the beach. Pauline said that he was at his mom's house on Akahu... Aku Street in Hawaiian Beaches, and they arrived in a purple Volkswagen to pick him up. The detective asked him to describe the car's condition, and he said they headed to, uh, I'm sorry, they said, he said that they headed towards the end of Hawaiian Beaches toward Beach Road on the right, and they continued to go through a dirt road. Pauline then wanted to back up and describe a bit more to the detective, and that's when he said, Beach Road. It comes out at Kapaho. Okay, wait, I gotta say about the stops, okay? We made several stops to smoke cocaine. And after, well, we kept continuing on a little ways. We came out by an intersection going towards Kapaho, and that's where we saw a girl standing up. As we were going past, my friend Ian looked towards the side, and he said, Ho, look at that girl. Then we continued to go forward down the road. But at that point, they decided to turn around and head back towards the girl. Ian apparently wanted to talk to the girl and ask her out. Ian was going fast, according to Pauline, maybe about 40 to 45 miles an hour, and Pauline was telling him to slow down, but he wouldn't. Then he felt a bump, a reverse, and then another bump. Pauline was back and forth on the details about her bike, though. He couldn't recall if she was walking with a bike, but he remembered her standing or walking across the roadway holding something. He couldn't remember anything distinct about her clothes or her hair, but he does recall that the brothers both exited the car and put Dana's body in the trunk of the car. He said they then drove around and made their way towards Hawaiian beaches where they made several stops, one of which was at a place with junk cars. All three of them exited the car, and Ian asked Pauline to help grab her body out of the car. At that point, Pauline said, Then we carried the body out. We laid um down, and she was still alive. She never said nothing, never really acted like she had been hurt. Then Ian Schweitzer went and ended up having sex with her. 
He was asked if he had seen Ian having sex with her. He said yes. Then when he was done, and it lasted for a short while, maybe like a couple of seconds, four or five seconds. Anyway, then he wanted me to go for it on top of her. And then he, when he asked if he had sex with her as well, he said, I refused. I told him I never like, and at the same time he was having sex, I just kind of enjoy watching, I guess because of the drugs. Yeah, it's just like, I don't know. When he was describing that, it just like gave me chills. Yeah, it's kind of disgusting. Yeah. And then he's he's saying that they're, you know, going and stopping at these places to smoke cocaine. And now they're going to this junkyard and pulling her body out and doing these different things to her. And all the while, she's still alive. Yeah, they could have actually taken her to the hospital. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, so Pauline did say to the detective that Dana had blood coming out of her eyes, nose, and mouth at that time. And after he refused to have sex with Dana, Ian told him that he had to knock her off, meaning that he had to kill her. Because if she were to survive, then she would tell on all three of them and they would all get in trouble. Ian then told Pauline to find something to kill her with, and Pauline found an L-shaped bar, which would just be like a crowbar, right? Why can't I think of the name of it? Could be a crowbar. It is a crowbar, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. it could be a crowbar. Yeah, so that's when he says L-shaped bar, that's what I'm envisioning. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of, too. Okay. It could be a crowbar. So he then hit her over the head, but he couldn't remember where on her head. But then he started feeling sick to his stomach. So at that point, he just stayed outside by the car and told Ian that he couldn't do it. After this, they headed back towards Hawaiian beaches, but they took the back roads this time. They made several more stops to smoke cocaine again, and he indicated that Ian kept checking on Dana to make sure she was dead. He also said that this was after they left the area where they raped her. He said they didn't know if her body, he said he didn't know if her body was actually in the trunk once they left that area, as he was already in the car before the brothers were. He didn't realize that her body wasn't in the trunk until they made it to Ian's house and they were washing the blood off of his car. So that's a little alarming to me. Like, I get that you're all, like, smoking cocaine and shit, but how do you not notice that somebody took a full-on body out of a trunk and threw it on the side of the road? That's what I don't understand. I don't know either. I remember this other case I, I heard about where people are acting like the whole day didn't happen. Jeez. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've never smoked cocaine or done any type of drugs, so I can't tell you what it does to you, but I I would think if you remember putting a body in a trunk, you would remember seeing a body being taken out of a trunk, you know? <laughs> I would think so, too. I, I mean, I haven't ever done any drugs either, so <laughs> like you, I wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah. So... They were washing the blood off of his car, and Ian had taken a shower and made his brother put their clothes in a garbage bag to, you know, get rid of the evidence. All three of... So they were all in the right mind enough to know, oh, we've got to clean this blood off the car, and we have to get rid of our evidence. Like, you were in the right mind to know all of that, but not to know where the body went. Okay, makes no sense to me. So all three of them then attended a Christmas party as if nothing had ever happened. So they just like 
showered, changed their clothes, washed the car, and then went to a Christmas party. Like, it was a normal fucking day. Pauline was eventually sentenced to life in prison, but he died in 2015 after he was killed in a New Mexico prison. Sean Schweitzer, Ian's brother, was 16 at the time with no criminal record. He was sentenced to five years probation and one year in jail for manslaughter. Ian Schweitzer is still locked up in an Arizona prison. He was found guilty of murder, rape, and kidnapping. He was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole, but since his minimum sentence was set at 130 years, that guarantees he will never get out. However, the Innocence Project is working towards his release. According to an article posted by KHON2 on January 19, 2017, attorneys Brooke Hart and Bill Garrison are requesting Schweitzer's a sentence to be overturned on the grounds of innocence, ineffective assistance of counsel, new DNA evidence, and other new evidence. Court documents say Schweitzer's trial attorney failed to call the key alibi witness to the stand, namely their uncle, and that he failed to properly investigate the case. The documents go on to say Schweitzer's other attorney who represented him in his appeal also provided ineffective counsel. The documents also say DNA evidence does not match Schweitzer, uh, Schweitzer uh, and that beca- Jesus, learn how to sentence, Heather. <laughs> the documents say DNA evidence does not match Schweitzer and that because of scientific advancements, the evidence should be retested. In 2015, the Hawaii Innocence Project hired an independent collision reconstruction expert who said that the expert who testified for the state back in 2000 made his theory based on false scientific calculations. The expert back then said a Volkswagen bug had hit Ireland, but the new expert says, based on his calculations, it could not have been possible if the vehicle was carrying three large passengers. Court documents also say a confidential informant has recently come forward with important information relating to the case. So just when you think it's all wrapped up in a nice little bow, something like this happens and throws it all out of whack. So did they do this? Did they not do this? Was it a drug-induced confession? Like, why did that, why did Pauline even go to the police and say that he had any part of it? And give all these details incriminating him and two other people. I just, I don't get it. I don't know either. It doesn't make sense. Why did the police even go, or the prosecuting attorney even go forward with prosecuting the case? If there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute these these boys. It, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I I just, I am like blown away by this honestly because I thought once like when I was like researching it and then I saw that he confessed and he had this whole story and then there were two other people involved and all these details about it I'm like oh my god he totally did it like good good they locked him up yes this is great and then when I kept reading I'm like wait a minute what is going on because there were even reports saying that the Volkswagen that they were driving that day had been uh like repaired and repainted like somebody came forward saying that and they're like yeah I know it's the right one because of x y and z so like there were even people who noticed subtle changes like that 
So, like, why were those changes being done if, you know, they didn't have anything to do with it? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know either. It could be mere coincidence, but even that, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know. Because I've heard of other cases where people were forced into confession, but it sounds like these guys were guilty, but the evidence seems to point to them. Yeah, I thought so too. But then when they say, you know, they have new or they have DNA evidence that doesn't match him, it's just like, okay, well, what evidence did you have before that did match him then? How did that ever get into the mix? Or or was there any DNA evidence before? Well, I mean, Maybe there had the to have been, I guess, because if it doesn't match him, then there was some type of DNA tested again. I don't know. I'm really confused by this. <laughs> like Maybe the police didn't test any. I, I, I think that may be the case. I don't think they tested DNA. Because I didn't see any... any um, Anything mentioning DNA testing. Yeah, this is crazy. And then for the one guy to be killed in prison, like, if he wasn't in prison for this crime, would he have been killed? And if he didn't do it, then, wow, now there's two people that are dead for no apparent reason. Then it's a, it, it's, it'll end up to be a big shame if, those people were wrongfully convicted. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah, I mean the 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 youngest one, the one that was out um, after five years of probation. He even was interviewed after he got out, and he was just like, you know, it's it's a terrible thing. I feel bad for her mother, but you know, I had nothing to do with it. I do feel bad for that family, but I honestly am innocent. I I have no idea who did it. So it's like, you know, he already served a year for manslaughter at 16 and had five years probation and everything else for something that he still says he had nothing to do with. And now there's this information coming out that his brother may not have been involved either. It's crazy. It could have been coerced, the the confessions. I've heard about coerced confessions in other cases. Yeah, they happen a lot. I mean, it's it's more common than people think. And it's just, to me, it's just mind-blowing that, you know, if it was a coerced confession, then how in the hell were they able to get three people on it? Not just one, but three. It was, it's crazy to me. Yeah, it is. It's, it's mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's probably going to be a bit tough with this episode, given the new developments and the potential that the killer is still out there. But I I still want to ask you the same question that I ask all of my guests. Maybe for this one, though, you can answer in like a more generalized way. Knowing what you know, like with the details surrounding the case, do you think the person who did it did it because of nature, nurture, narcissism a combination why do you think that they would have done something so brutal to her i would say it's probably narcissism 
but it's, it, it's hard to tell because we don't have if it's not hit the person that's in jail <laughs> it's hard to tell yeah it was a very violent act yeah it was it, it's like that person hated her because mm-hmm. of the viciousness of running her over and brutally raping her it's gross very very yeah i mean i am one of those people who tries to look at everything in it you know what i mean and also at the same time try to see i guess so nine times out of ten when a wife is killed you know the husband did it so it's just like who in her life was super close to her? And that's really hard to find because she hadn't lived down there with her sister for very long. And the only people that she really knew were her family, who was there with her, and then her friend, who she was going to invite to Christmas dinner. And other than that, it would almost have to be either, you know, somebody who just had this rage inside of them for some reason and just took it out on her because she's the one that they saw or maybe she crossed paths with somebody and they just really you know she struck them the wrong way for some I don't know like it's so hard to narrow it down because it doesn't seem like she knew a whole lot of people there could be because it was Christmas somebody felt lonely and the rage that they felt from Christmas I, I think it was just a random attack. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was anybody she knew. Yeah, and I feel like it couldn't be just because, like, like I said, like she really didn't. It didn't seem like she really knew a whole lot of people there. At least not knew them very well. And yeah, there the story from Pauline. I mean, that tracks. I mean, the way they were acting, they were on drugs. You know, they went to go pick up this pretty girl that they saw on the road and then, you know, things went south and he hit her. So then he had to run her back over and then she wasn't dead. So then they did all these things to her and it was just like one thing after another just spiraled out of control and it was drug-induced and everything else. So I could definitely see that happening. But if they are not guilty and none of that stuff happened, I have no idea what happened to that girl. Yeah, neither do I. I do think that somebody hit her with a vehicle. Was it them? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, she was raped, probably. Was it her? Was it them? I don't know. Yeah. You know? I, so. Yeah, I'd be interested to find out, you know, what this Innocence Project comes up with and the DNA evidence and whatever else they're able to, you know, dig up or test or whatever. I I'm really curious about how this case unfolds. It's been way too long for that family not to have answers. Yeah, I'd like to know too. Looks like there might be a part two for us. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Hopefully the part two, you know, says the, you know, the conclusion, like who is guilty and she gets justice. That would be nice. Yeah, uh, it would be. Yeah. She finally yeah, get some real justice, yeah, so she can rest easy. Yeah. Well, I guess that pretty much wraps it up until we 
get some answers from the Innocence Project. But again, thank you so much for your help and joining on this episode, helping me pronounce Hawaii names. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) Uh, And if anybody out there listening wants me to cover a case from their area or want to come on and cover a case with me, let me know. I'm open to suggestions in that area. And until next time, stay inside, stay alive. Don't call the cops. Bye. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 